Welcome to Go Behind the Ballot, a podcast where two Texas moms go on an educational quest to demystify Texas politics. Join me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, as we deep dive into the most burning issues, hear stories from candidates, and offer hope in these challenging political times. Let's saddle up and go behind the ballot. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Go Behind the Ballot. I'm Claire Campos O'Neill. And I'm Nicole Abshire. Thank you for being with us. We're really excited to be getting into our new series, which is going to be discussing food insecurity in Texas. And for this episode, we wanted to just get a more holistic understanding of food insecurity, how it's very connected to precarity and a lot of times poverty. We invited our guest to come onto the show who has an incredible podcast called Citations Needed. Today, we spoke to Adam Johnson, and he has so many thoughts. He is so smart. I don't know how he holds it all in his head. I really appreciate his show and the dots he connects. I was like, Nicole, I think he would be a good one to have come on and explain to us a little bit more about why we're in this state of one in eight Texans being food insecure why so many folks go hungry in a state of so much abundance. What is this about at the end of the day? I think did a great job of just giving us some things he's noticed in the media because his podcast focuses on media, PR, and power and being through a very critical lens of how it's gotten us to the place where we're at. So Nicole, what are some thoughts that you have? I definitely want to warn everybody to buckle in because he is a fast talker and the information he gives is very dense. And I find it very challenging just to take in and integrate with kind of the thoughts that I already have, the things that honestly, I'm a little programmed to believe. And so I find him to be very challenging, but so fascinating and definitely worth a listen. And this might be another one where I would recommend maybe listening more than once. I cannot recommend it enough, though. And stick with us and keep trying with us. Yes, absolutely. And let us know what you think of this episode. We think it's going to be a great one to start off our series on food insecurity. And as a quick reminder to folks, Nicole and I are going to be at South by Southwest. We're going to be in the civic engagement track March 13th. So if you're at South by, please come see us. We're going to be having some great panelists who will also be on the show. But we have Adam here to set the stage for us. So check out this episode. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Go Behind the Ballot. We're really excited to be speaking with Adam Johnson today. Hi, Adam. How are you? I'm well. How are you? We're doing all right. We're hanging in there, getting over a little bit of sickness and some poor power grids in the state, but it is what it is. Well, as long as everyone has power back. No, it's actually only snowed once here in Chicago. So I think Central Texas may be beating us thus far this year. It's crazy. These like new extreme weather patterns that we deny are here to stay. So we'll see what happens. Denial really works. Denial. Yes. Thank you for chatting with us. We love your show, Citations Needed. And a lot of the themes that y'all talk about on that show, specifically being critical of the media. And for this episode, we want to talk about food insecurity and some of these misconceptions that we have that are reinforced by the media's narrative of what we think of as someone who is food insecure. And what Nicole and I hypothesize is that it's just very invisible. We just don't, we don't see it in the media. We don't see it. People who come from means in our everyday lives, we don't know how pervasive it is. 
So that's something we really want to get into in this discussion. But before that, we like to get to know our guests a little bit better. So we would just love to know a little bit about your Texas experience, because we know you've lived in Texas before. Adam, tell us about your political journey. Did you come from a family that talked about politics? I come from a pretty conservative family, which I suppose is typical of growing up in Texas as a white guy. Demographically speaking, there was very little hope there. And then I guess I got more left in college, as people typically do, and things like the Iraq War, Occupy Wall Street, things of that nature, I think, moved a lot of people from my generation to the left in a way that perhaps somewhat generationally unique, although I don't like to focus too much on generational discourse and it can be kind of fatuous, but there are certain markers for sure that made me more skeptical, more concerned with issues of anti-imperialism, socialism, whatever kind of ism one wishes to indulge in. And that kind of brought me to writing, which then brought me to political writing. And then eventually I made a job out of it over the years. Worked in the restaurant business for 10 years, which I think probably helped create, plant the seeds a little bit. And then awaiting tables will turn you into a misanthropic leftist pretty quickly. Yeah. It's not an easy job for sure. Was there a particular issue that animated you? Because I listening back to your first episode of Citations Needed, which is how I honestly think I found your show because I was trying to learn more about charter schools myself. Was it like charter schools or was there something that started to have you pull the thread and see the whole bigger picture? And a lot of it around Occupy Wall Street to generalize quality discourse. You know, I had close members of my family who were in, in poverty and shifting away from the mindset of blaming the individual versus blaming society and thinking about things systemically, not to be too romantic about it. But I think when one begins to shift, think of things in terms of systems rather than just the accidents of capital, which I think I bought into a lot of that sort of mindset in my mid-20s, the kind of free economics, like neoliberal worldview, when you start to view things as being not discrete moral choices, but sort of systems, you begin to open up a whole world of critique and a whole world of kind of politics. And that's and then people who come before you did all the thinking for you and you just read them and then you're like, oh, that makes sense. That all kind of adds up. And I thought that a leftist politics more generally without being too sectarian, a more predictive way of understanding the world, that they were better at predicting things quasi-scientifically. Yeah, to me, the ideology that can say, okay, a politician says X, Y, and Z, but they're actually going to do A, B, and C. And then the, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six times they correctly predict that. Then I begin to say, well, those guys may know something. And I thought that general dimension, that general paradigm, I thought was more, I guess, more predictive, more attractive. And then issues that get people involved in these things, like you said, is this sort of idea that poverty is a political choice on how homelessness is a political choice, food insecurity is a political choice, that these aren't, that the, that once I began to project to the false austerity and false, which again, I do think the recession and the bank bailouts in 2009 made astutely clear, right? That these were, these things were largely artificial. They were largely political choices. Then that opens up a whole world of what's possible. Obviously, you see different models in other countries of people who do differently, who do have more robust welfare states, who do have far smaller homeless populations. And then you realize, well, these countries aren't richer than the United States is. So obviously this is not an issue of austerity or it is an issue of, it's an issue of political choices we make and that everything else is sort of a way of taking you from that factor or attempting to pit people against working class against each other or blaming poor people. What's the old cliche about politicians' job is to have the middle class blame the poor people for their problems. Once I got out of that mindset, I guess it made me more politically on the left as it were, because there is so many things in this country that I think don't have to be. 30 million Americans are still uninsured. One in eight Americans have debt, a medical debt of over $10,000. We don't have any kind of NHS or universal healthcare system. We have 600,000 unhoused people, which is obscene. We have 17% of children live in poverty. Obviously, you guys know the food, the statistics on food insecurity, which was what y'all talking about. So all these things are political choices. They don't need to exist 
and they exist for very specific reasons that make a lot of people, rather make a very few people a lot of money, to put it in, in class terms. And I always think of Norman Solomon's adage, because I think the word neoliberal gets thrown around a lot, but I think it's actually useful in certain contexts. And he defined neoliberal worldview as a world of victims, but no victimizers, where all this suffering, but there's no real bad guys. The Bill Gates, Bono-like view of poverty. There's this accident of capital and this accident of history, and everyone, people are poor, but no one's really responsible for it, which strikes me as an extremely convenient worldview. And one I would certainly adopt if I had $100 billion. Oh, what, how did these guys get poor? What happened here? I don't know. I was just... And the idea that poverty is actually a product of wealth accumulation in very few amount of hands and that it's an issue of forced austerity and labor disciplining and all these kinds of things. Again, other leftists have been writing about for centuries now. Adam, I have a question for you. If somebody wanted to follow down the track that you're talking about, I'm going to call it an awakening. I don't know if that's what you would call it. I'm trying not to sound too much like a religious nut. <laughs> Leftists can start to sound like they're in the David Koresh cult and it can get a little off-putting. <laughs> we'll send that vocabulary word aside. But who would you recommend that somebody were, that they would pick to read or what works do you feel like were really formative? Oh God, I'm so bad at this question. Oh no, okay. Am I putting you on the spot? <laughs> I do get that question a lot. And like they'll say, what's your sort of a one-on-one or onboarding for people who are curious? And I'm so bad at this answer because I... I don't want to, I would never prescribe any kind of orthodox Marxist texts because I think those are inscrutable for most people, not to be patronizing, but they're inscrutable to me. I don't know. Citations needed with Adam John. <laughs> it is a great place to start. It is a podcast that is deliberately designed to be an on-ramp, right? We don't wear our ideology on our sleeve. We're not, we try to be super accessible, but I don't know. I'd have to think about that. Why don't I get back to you? Everyone always has to have their perfectly pristine list that has everything non-problematic and it's perfectly, I couldn't give you, it's, it's a mix of things for me personally, so I don't know. Okay, know that we're not looking for perfection and we will await such lists. I know, but it's one of those things where I feel like I'll say something and then 20 minutes later, be like, oh, I should have added this or that. So I'm just going to, I'm going to take the coward's way out and abstain. Okay, great. But then here's how I'm going <laughs> to obligate you. I'm going to tell our listeners and you that we will share this via social media at okay. some future date. A lot of pressure. Stay tuned. <laughs> In the meantime, you can listen to Citations Needed, a fantastic podcast, and get a lot of great information because y'all cover a wide range of topics. But I think the through line is there, which is what you're talking about, is that we're in this system that is unfair. And there's a reason that it's that way. And that brings us back to food insecurity. And I'm just curious, Adam, like, what do you think is the way that the media is conveying food insecurity to folks. What do you think is the impression that we have and then the reality of the situation? The times I've written about this topic and other poverty-related topics, there's two vectors here. Number one is they just don't talk about it at all, which is probably the most common one. Two, when we talk about poverty and food insecurity and houselessness and other related sort of conditions, they're done in discrete moral terms, which is to say a person's individual choice or a person's individual journey. Now, oftentimes they'll frame it in what we call on our show perseverance porn, which is the sort of very popular trope you've seen where a nine-year-old collects cans to pay for his grandma's cancer surgery or a guy walks to work every day, two miles, five miles, 10 miles, 12 miles. There's been various iterations of this. And this is supposed to give the viewer an inspirational view of like hard work and perseverance. But in, of course, a healthy and moral society, these stories would not be stories of inspiration and warm-heartedness. They would be stories of shock and vulgarity because the, why is this 55-year-old man having to walk 10 miles to go to work at Chick-fil-A to pay for his rent, right? These people would be either provided for or given public transportation or other, some other means of baseline survival floor. And so when we talk about food insecurity, it's typically done as in a manner that is either about someone overcoming some struggle, right? Someone overcoming houselessness or some kid who thought of some 
clever way of raising money so we could afford food or whatever. But really, there isn't a lot of incentives to report on systems. There are exceptions, of course. There's Texas Observer, or sometimes they'll get like a or Houston Chronicle on for us. So I don't want to generalize too much, but your middle brow TV news, 95% of your coverage is either going to be non-existent or it's going to be, I don't know how 95 is non-existent, but it's either going to be non-existent or the vast majority that does exist is going to operate within this kind of Protestant, hardworking paradigm. And then when it is discussed as a social ill, it's done in what Adam Curtis calls, oh dear, which is the sort of 1980s famine in Africa. Oh dear, what can we do? It's this thing that happened. There's no real causes for this. No one's really funneling arms to support a civil war that's created this problem. There's no real kind of actor. Again, it's victims without victimizers. And that victim without victimizers paradigm is very popular in US corporate media, especially television media, because the second we start naming victimizers, the second we start naming those who transgress to the poor. It's a stopgap versus a real. Yeah, so you have this system, and so you have this coverage where you have victims without victimizers, because the second you start talking about victimizers, the thing you start talking about who specifically is transgressing the poor, rather than treating it like some unfortunate law of nature, right? Like you would. A natural disaster, although with climate change, even those have victimizers now. But let's say an earthquake, something that's sort of maybe a little bit more an act of God, to use an insurance term, that it's treated like an act of God. It's treated like something that sort of no one can do something about. To the extent people are doing about it, our benevolent billionaire overlords and multimillionaire overlords are donating to some token useless charity. And they're trying to do something about it, but ultimately it's done at the behest of and the caprice of the wealthy in our community. Because again, the second you start asking more systemic questions, make a lot of people uncomfortable, specifically those who own television, those in the advertisers who provide the revenue for television. And again, there is some kind of good government liberal reporting around the margins that does touch on some of those more systemic things, but it's never put in terms of a right. Because that idea is so foreign to American ideology that it is seen as being ideological, whereas letting people die frozen on the street is not an ideological act. In our society, Charles Murray, a white supremacist writer getting deplatformed from Middlebury College, is authoritarian but someone freezing to death on the streets is not authoritarian. To me, make a ton of sense. Or someone being food insecure and starving is not viewed as being authoritarian, but it very much is. In fact, again, several leftist writers have made this point for many years, but if you don't have basic needs met, if you don't have medical care, if you're not alive because you died because of inadequate prenatal care or postnatal care or or because you have a chewable disease or because you have to ration insulin so your blood sugar goes too high and you go into diabetic ketoacidosis or whatever it is. If you don't have the basic, your basic needs met, if you don't have a full stomach, if you don't have your medical needs met, if you don't have housing, if you don't have a roof over your head, then your negative rights, your liberal rights don't really matter much. That kind of rights-based approach is obviously completely alien to most media. And so what we do is we get the charity model, we get the kind of, you know, we'll get this sort of emotional pornography for and can't afford it. But mostly there's no real systemic critique. Yeah, this connection that I'm making right now is we did an episode recently on critical race theory. And I'm thinking about the backlash we're seeing nationally, really specifically here in Texas to just shut down any discussion about it. And it seems like that's because CRT is so rooted in this idea that so much of our racism is systemic. Like this, anything that seems to be systemic, if it rises to the top, like there is this strong intentional effort to squash that. Do you, would you say that? Everyone, white guys, they're all just super thin skinned, right? It's, I didn't do it. No matter what you did. If your father robs a bank for $10,000 and it comes home and hands it to you and then he dies of a heart attack and the bank comes by once they're $10,000. Yeah. Intellectually, it's very inconsistent because it's, yeah, bootstraps for you, but not for me. And yet they can't see the advantage that's been passed down from generations. Why do you think we have this strong individualism ethos versus a communal cooperation one that would really benefit us on the whole? That's a great question because the U.S. does have obviously a very, or is far more punitive, far more 
prison-driven, far less charitable, a lower, weaker welfare state. And so why, well, that's why that is. It's, I think it's a combination of historic accidents, which are, again, based upon white supremacy, based upon the subjugation of workers and the divide, the division of the working class among racial lines. I think it's also just reinforced by the status quo. If you have, a, if you have I don't know, the original point, but if you have a high concentration of wealth and those people largely own the media, that the media in general, not always, but in general is going to reflect their class interests. And so then that becomes a feedback loop where there isn't a ton of incentive to mix that up. There is a strong kind of cultural image that's reinforced in our education system that talks about entrepreneurship is the highest junior achievement. You're poor not because of systemic problems. You're poor because of bad money management. All this kind of capitalist ideology is always just reinforced. And that leads to a system where massive inequality is viewed as being a good thing, right? It's viewed as being a, an opportunity for bootstrap to rise to the bottom because you can't rise from the bottom if there's no bottom or if the bottom isn't sufficiently low enough. And that is enforced in our politics. So you look at obsession with the language of even, again, not to get too down this rabbit hole, but the way we talk about education, education is supposed to be some anti-poverty program. Even Democrats oftentimes, not so much lately, but for a long time, would talk in these terms, right? Education is the silver bullet. It can lift you out of poverty. And it's, wait a second, that doesn't make any sense. Because why do we need to pass some kind of Rube Goldberg machine of Maddox test to get out of poverty? Why don't we just get rid of poverty? If people, if the problem with poverty is people don't have money, just give them money. If the problem is they don't have health care or housing, just give them at least a sort of baseline floor. You don't want a bunch of people hanging Xbox in a mansion or whatever. Sure, fine. But basic survival, like welfare system that a lot of countries have already, that seems reasonable to me. But, but that is, but there are, again, there are systemic reasons we can enter for why that is. We've discussed them before, but largely that destitution, poverty, and homelessness and food insecurity are essential to disciplining the bottom rung of labor. We saw this during the COVID pandemic aid from the, with the stimulus and the enhanced unemployment insurance, the discussion around giving people an extra $600 a week. And almost immediately in April of 2020, the Wall Street Journal, that's going to disincentivize people to work. Lindsey Graham, Senator John Cornyn of Texas, came out and said, if you give people more money than the minimum wage, they're going to stay home, which is true. But what this was a tacit admission that to keep wages low, which is to say to keep workers precarious and to keep them frightened, you have to have some percent of the population that lives in poverty, that lives, that's homeless, that doesn't have health care. What is the number one reason why organizations like the Chamber of Commerce and National Restaurant Association lobby against universal health care and when states try to implement it or the federal government begins to talk about it. It's because if workers have don't have to have their health care tethered to their job, it gives immensely more. It takes away the one thing that employers wield over largely middle class and lower middle class employees, which is health care. For these systems of fear to work, to keep wages low, to keep labor liquid, to keep it precarious, to keep them frightened, to prevent unionization. Again, you've seen this now with the way that you have people on CNBC talk about how high unemployment, rather low unemployment is a nut that has to be cracked because labor power is sticky, right? It's too powerful. You have to artificially weaken it by increasing interest rates. And they openly talk about it in financial media, Financial Times, The Economist, they openly talk about how basically the worker got too powerful. How many people on Fox News complain about how they went to Nando's Chicken and the guy was, they're not obsequious enough. Not desperate enough for tips. Their Starbucks guys are getting unionized. Wait, they can't do that. They're just a bunch of grad school students, right? They're a bunch of bisexuals with tattoos. They can't unionize. I mean, you see this over the last two, three years play out where it's where people are very open, very honest about the fact that you have to, that the worker basically needs to be taken down a peg and things like basic income, things like, which is what enhanced unemployment did, things like eviction moratoriums where you can't get kicked out of your house, that these things were making workers too powerful and that upended our social arrangement. And that really does, the implication of that, I think quite clearly is that Extreme poverty is a political choice that is necessary to maintain inequality. That inequality doesn't really work if people have a floor that they can't drop below, where they have house over their head, where they have health care provided for them, 
And then the assumption is that, oh, they're just going to sit around and smoke weed all day and be lazy. Plenty of countries have these things or some version of these things. And people don't do that. People actually, it turns out they enjoy trying, they enjoy work for other reasons or they want to work for other reasons or they want to better themselves for other reasons. But this is the kind of axiomatic myth in this country and other, and to some extent, even an Anglo-American thing. You see this a lot in Britain. They have an NHS. They also have similar. The biggest crime you can commit is if somebody who's poor, who's viewed as being undeserved, has the slightest bit of luxury or happiness. This is the old Ronald Reagan 1976 speech in Oxford, Mississippi, when he talked about the strapping young buck in line buying T-bone steaks on your welfare money. The most thinly veiled, razor-thin racist comment in the history of razor-thin veiled racist. This is the animating ethos of so much of how we talk about poverty, that there's some, if you are precarious, lower working class or lower middle class, you're not poor because your boss is scamming you or ripping off your wages or working you too hard or because banks are getting bailouts or we're handing them a trillion dollars a year to the military industrial complex or whatever. You're poor because the guy, the typically coded as black, is living higher on the hog. And people say this shit. You'll meet random people in the wild. And they'll say, oh, yeah, here they're getting half a million dollar homes to homeless people. Or they're giving away Obama phones. Remember that panic? Or they're giving away student loans. <laughs> oh, we are in the student. Oh, God forbid. Right. And so you have this idea that there's that your precarity or your hardship is not caused by those in power, but inversely caused by those out of power. And this is the fundamental premise of all faux right wing populism is to completely inverse power dynamics. The people on top are actually oppressed. The white man's oppressed, even though I know they're not categorically on top. Generally speaking, as a class, they're the most oppressed. And those who are at the bottom are somehow not really clear. They're all kind of living high on the hog. So someone goes out and panhandles in two degree weather all day, and we're told they, they get in a Cadillac and drive off. We This urban legend has been around since I was in high school. And this mentality is so ingrained in our culture, and it is reinforced by our media. It's reinforced by certainly people like Greg Abbott, who are constantly telling people the homeless are living high on the hog, while working class taxpayers, right? One of these great kind of coded racial demagogic where taxpayers are being fleeced by the evil liberal state. And so with that, facing that kind of broad cultural ethos, like how do you combat that? How do you, because again, so much of it is just based upon, it's not a co coincidence that the weakest unions ever were in this country historically was in the deep South, with the exception of some of the Knights of Labor, although they were anti-Chinese, but, or the IWW and the Brotherhood of Timber Workers and other related organizations, labor was always weakest in the South for precisely that reason. It was, a, it was the, you use quote unquote racial divisions and ra white racism to weaken your labor force. And if there's one thing the capital class is good at, it's coming up with ways of weakening labor forces, whether it be racial grievances, whether it be, because again, if you look at a lot of this anti-woke legislation coming out of Florida and you read between the lines or you read the fine print, so much of it is about busting labor. It's about busting teachers, busting academic unions and universities. There's always some new way they bust labor power. All that kind of creates a system, especially in Texas, which historically has had very weak labor laws, where you have weak social welfare state, weak progressive institutions, basically a one-party state for the last 25 years, 30 years. It's hard, and especially when the right wing has become exclusively about triggering the libs and punishing the weak in a sadistic manner at this yeah. point, right? Do you think that the cracks are starting to show at all? Do you think people are waking up to this distraction, this like magic show almost. Let's look at these things that don't really impact your life. So we're going to talk about over and over instead of fixing the real problems of our everyday lives. Like Nicole and I just experienced another winter storm that impacted our power two years ago. Our power grid failed. Rural Texas is seeing hospitals close. Our schools are under attack. Real things that impact people do not get the oxygen. It's CRT. I would say the one problem that 
I think to some extent, I think one problem is people don't have the language to articulate that frustration because one thing conservatives are really good at doing is they're really good at, so they do it similar in the UK with the national health care, with the natural health services. They gut them with austerity. They underfund them. And then when they fail, they say, look, government doesn't work. And this is done in the US all the time with our schools, right? Underfund schools. They come in and say, look at all these bad grades. Now we need to bring in Bill Gates and the charter schools to privatize it. And so you see, I think the way the rhetoric around the power grid plays out is similar. It's a power grid. Isn't that public? Even though it's not, but people perceive it. But government regulators, too much government regulation, too much. What do they blame when, just look at what the, they, when Russia invaded Ukraine, that was the first thing Fox News did. They blamed environmentalists for weakening the American energy sector and oil sector and the Green New Deal. They blamed the Green New Deal. So it's like, they're so good at flipping everything to be some liberal busybody. So even when the right wing guts these public institutions and underfunds things like infrastructure, education, the power grid, gas, they'll still spin it as kind of big nanny state gone too far. They overregulated us, blah, blah, blah. And so that's one fear. The second fear is the one positive thing I will say is I do think the like sadistic trigger the libs, Greg Abbott, Donald Trump vector, I think it gets old after a while, right? I think it's kind of fun for the first few years, you're poking a stick into the wokes and it feels good and this transgender thing's confusing and I want to like, but then eventually I do think it can, it, it's inherently degenerate. It's like any other degenerate drug because you have to get more hardcore, more punitive, more sadistic, more about cruelty for its own sake. Yeah, you see this with a, a lot of the sort of book bannings and the anti-trans laws. And now they're, first it was no trans Medicare for anyone or healthcare for anyone under 16. Then it was 18. Now in Oklahoma, they're floating 26 years old. So other states are going as high as 20, 21, 22, 23, whatever. I do think that certain voters have begun to shy away from that, especially the hyperbolic crime discussion. And you saw this with the underperforming of what was called like the red wave. Again, I don't want to be too optimistic. I know there are other factors like Dobbs, but I do think that kind of own the libs Republican Party brand begins to get old after a while. That again, maybe I'm being a little optimistic here, but I think people are fundamentally not, a lot of people, there's always going to be 20%, whatever, but I think there's a lot of people who are winnable, who are not that sadistic and not that mean and can see that, because even someone like Ron DeSantis, right, who's just, who has the cruelty of Trump, but none of the humor, he's just sullen and boring and mean. And it's like, this can't be an attractive worldview. And Biden, for as much as I, I don't, like a lot of his politics, he's far more, he's far too conservative. He at least has a bit of optimism in his vision. There's a world we're fighting for. There's at least rhetorically the language of solidarity, even if in policy there's not, right? Or not nearly enough. So I do think that like that, again, if you look at like internal Republican discussions and people like Warren Cass who are trying to reform the party away from Trumpism, like they know that. Stick gets old after a while, that paranoia around QAnon and these things. And ultimately, yeah, your fucking soccer mom doesn't want to hear about underground pedophile rings because you sit home all day with fucking conspiracy court board and snort Adderall and try to connect the dots between Comet Pizza and the Rothschilds. Like eventually that's just going to, that's going to run out of gas. I think, I hope. And America's had spasms of that kind of right-wing demagoguery before and it has kind of ran out of gas. We saw that obviously. It's basically, they're all just rebranding versions of John Bircherism where it was like when McCarthy was accusing Eisenhower of being a communist and America was like, okay, I think we've had enough here. Like your Curtis LeMay is a communist. I think when you have an ideology that's so degenerate and about being so hardcore and about being triggering the libs more than the guy next to you, invariably, I do think it becomes very unattractive. To, and you could see that in the polling. I guess I see that trend nationally. I think I'm nervous, right, living here in Texas because I just can't stop thinking like how far will they go? How far will they go before we trip too far? And it's just hard for me to see that end. Yeah. It's a long road. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, I will say waiting for your opponent, full-blown Nazi is not the best strategy. And that this, this has been my criticism of the Democratic Party for many years, which is that 
they've done a very poor job providing an alternative vision that is based on solidarity and economic populism because they have tried to maintain, because the corporate wing of the party has maintained power largely. And so things that I believe can offer material vision, like, for example, universal health care, like, for example, let's say free college rather than $10,000 debt relief for people, things like that, things that are robust and dramatic and provide a, a real sense that something can change or that you're not in the pocket of Wall Street, that wing of the party has been largely sidelined. And so I do think to the extent to which Democrats have made marginal gains, it's, it is objectively the Democrats should be doing light years better than they've been doing, given how radical the Republican Party is. The fact that they lost the House, even though that was relatively good in terms of historical trends, but this, the, the party is so fringe and so toxic and has such high unfavorables. And Trump is, they, we, they should not barely be beating these people. It's difficult to say because it's a counterfactual. And I'm sure Democratic consultant with the, with a more moderate wing would dispute that counterfactual because it is ultimately unprovable. And obviously it's somewhat ideologically self-serving of me because I also think that the ideology that I have is also very, is the more electable one. But I do think that given the strategy seems to be like, let's let them go far to the right and then we'll pick up the swing voters in Fairfax, Virginia. And I don't think that's a very romantic vision for politics. And I think it basically, it, I think it feels cynicism. And you saw this with when Dobbs happened, they're like, oh, Republicans have, it's a self-inflicted wound. And like, yeah, but women don't have abortion anymore. Yeah. They've won. And I think a lot of these mercenary, more corporate Democrats who have, don't have a lot of firm ideological commitments, they can't understand why Republicans would do something that was perhaps politically in the short term. And that they actually believe in things. They have beliefs. They hate women. Like hating women is a core part of their worldview. And they've won. And I remember when I was in college and you'd have the radical anti-abortion activists on campus being like, oh, this is a waste of time. What are they doing? This, this thing's been around for 40 years. It's not going anywhere. And 20 years later, they won. And yeah, you, you did modestly better in the midterms, but it won. I, people have done the retrospectives, the autopsies. They said Democrats lost the messaging war around abortion the second they started talking about safe, legal, <laughs> and all this kind of... And rare. John Kerry, I personally think it's murder, but I support it. Wait a second. It's murder. What is that? Like... <laughs> And those kinds of half-ass speaking both, out of both sides of your mouth ultimately lost the moral argument. Some people even argue that the focus on choice was a fun, again, it was maybe strategic in the 1970s, a libertarian, but that ultimately that sort of seeded too much ground. So yeah, I think simply waiting in, for your arch nemesis to, to die of old age, well, it can work, but it... <laughs> they have a long life, at least in Texas. A lot of people are going to suffer in the meantime. Yeah. yeah, no, and that Texas is different. I'm not too intimate with the ins and outs of it, but it doesn't seem like the radical element is let it leveling up too much. Lot. Now the problem is the other X factor is gerrymandering. They don't need to cool off. More than that, Nicole and I had an election series where we were talking about the statewide offices and statewide offices are not impacted by gerrymandering. And yet the Democrats did not do well. There was no one came close to winning any of those races. So we do wonder what hope is there for Texas sometimes. I think they should start trying to get the reanimate the dead corpse of Beto O'Rourke every four years. <laughs> Poor bit. That man's got a lot of lives. Let's see how many times he can run and lose. Well, he can raise a lot of money, but. So what? What's the Nixon rule? You can you know, lose twice in your politics. In fairness, it's quite difficult to win as a Democrat. But yeah, maybe another tack. Something. <laughs> we just need some sort of opposing force here because we see what happens when there's not. They run the table. Yeah. Speaking of run the table, something that we talk about a lot in this show is how right now the Texas legislature is in session and there's a $33 billion budget surplus. And Nicole and I go to a lot of these events where they talk about what it's going to be spent on and it's property taxes. It's like infrastructure, maybe schools, but like never is it towards alleviating poverty or anti-property programs. And we're just like, when does that get its turn? It feels like never. Because we do have one in eight Texans that is food insecure. We do have a lot of folks that there's a high need and yet they're 
invisible. They're just never top of mind. I just saw a bumper sticker a couple of days ago on the back of someone's car that was for a state rep. And it said, make America like Texas. That was her slogan. And so then I did a little deep dive into her website. And her whole thing is that she believes in small government and she believes in the power of NGOs and charity associations that like, it is her philosophy that they should fill in the gap. And I just thought, wow. And then her vision, of course, is to make America like Texas. Yeah. But don't we see what a failure that is? Yeah, it's about power and control. They want to have the, it's also about tax breaks. They want to have, again, there's no sense of rights or political power. They're simply the billionaire wakes up in the morning and his or her whim is the thing that may or may not get funded. It's lotteryism. If you get lucky. But then interestingly in her story too, she also shares the story of her father and grandfather who worked in a non-air-conditioned or heated shop. It's all the bootstrap talk, too. It's a really... The persistence porn. <laughs> my favorite thing politicians do is, is when they try to like act like suffering is inherited. They're like, my grandfather worked in this cold... Wait a second. My grandfather was a boilermaker. He's the toughest son of a bitch in the world. Like, I, I'm a podcaster. I wake up at noon. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't inherit working class credibility. That's not a thing. I love... Every politician does it. My great-grandma came here, and she worked in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. It's like, you're corporate lawyer. You haven't worked a day in your life. Come on. Yeah, it's the proximity somehow. How they always do that. Now, my great, great, grandma's like, yeah, they all did because everybody was poor back then. That's how it worked. Unless you were like literally royalty, you were going to work in some shit job. No, I love when every politician does that in the Democratic Republican convention. They always have to like poverty check their great granddaddy. Yeah. He was a rancher. You went to Yale. Hey, your father lives in a garden. Yeah, you grew up in a gated neighborhood. Okay, whatever. Just don't. Yeah. I like how you said just like the perseverance porn. I mean, using it there. Look at them and how they came out of it and saying. We're a country of 300 million bootstrap, hardworking, tough, rough and tumble. It's like the Trump. I got a million, just a small loan of a million dollars. Okay. I don't know. I don't know your story. I don't know what kind of annuities and trust you have, but sure. I'm sure you're very hardworking. <laughs> Do you see any media, news sources, shows, anything that is presenting a truer picture to the state of things and a different reality that would put us on a better trajectory? Yeah, I mean, there are more labor-oriented or poverty-oriented journalists out there occasionally. They're, of course, they're largely the exception to the rule. There are outlets that do more... I get a feel like if I'm doing the Oscar speech, if I name one and I miss one, I'm going to feel bad. But I didn't want to, I want to name them. But there, there are those that do it. There are those that sort of are more focused on the afflicted. It's just pretty rare. It's so rare that like when I see it come up on my Twitter timeline or whatever, I'll share it with enthusiasm. Because it's, oh, here's a story about poverty or a story about some kind of systemic critique about why people are poor versus even just like labor coverage. The idea that there's some inherent tension between workers and businesses. This is a modern, like a relatively recent thing. It wasn't until like five years ago you even got this all the time. But now you have like decent labor reporting. I think that's improved quite a bit, actually. I'm not too nihilistic about that. I think even websites like Bloomberg and New York Times have like decent labor coverage now, which just wasn't the case 10 years ago. So I do think there's been some progress. One of the reasons why I think that is, aside from a kind of general like popularity of socialism or whatever and the Bernie Sanders and all that stuff, is so many more news outlets are unionized. The rates of unionization in news media has increased significantly over the last five, five to 10 years. And I do think having unionized media, not the panacea, but it does, I think, improve the outcomes for reporting because they themselves are now members of a labor union in the working class. And that also gives them more editorial independence. That gives them more flexibility. 
And so I do think one way of improving media coverage, again, not to overstate it, but I do think it helps and it makes it better is to have more labor unions in media. And you just, you can see it. Even things like a better firewall and editorial control are vastly improved when you have organized labor running our media and making the editorial decisions in our media. Because even sometimes the editors and producers are in the union, which is even better. Yeah. What thoughts do you have, Nicole? No, it just makes a lot of sense. I'm just trying to take all of this in. I think it's like, I'm just trying to orient myself to, I've run into this, even listening to your podcast, if I'm perfectly honest, it's just, it's a lot to take in, I think, because I hear the truth in it. And I also feel the challenge in it. It's holding both of those things at the same time. And it's like, it feels so radical to take it on board. And yet it also feels urgent. There's just a lot I think I'm trying to do all at the same time. Yeah, no, we, some people will sometimes complain to us. They say your show is very bleak. Like you analyze everything correctly, but you don't provide any solutions. And I'm like guilty as charged. Like I'm a media critic. I don't know what do you want from me. It's a bit of a cop out because what when, and so what I say is I try to do because I do think that's the whole like John Stewart. I'm just a comedian of cop. One thing we have tried to do is try to be a little bit more. Here's this again. Even this seems maybe petty, but here's this organization that's like seeking to change this. Here's how you can find them. And a lot of times we'll try to get guests on who are like actually trying to change the world, whether they're doing political organizing or they're working on labor strikes inside of prisons or they're working with groups that are try- that are legitimately trying to redirect resources away from part incarceration and policing into communities and so forth. And that way there's a sense of like actionability. There's like things we can do. And I'm sure y'all face this too with y'all show. What is the thing? Everyone says, okay, here's this dreary, horrible thing. And people always say like, I want to listen to your show. I have to stay away from sharp objects. Like, oh God. Like now that you've, now that you've seen, sort of seen the kind of badness, like what is there is something you do. And I've always, I do think there has to be a sense that something can be done about it. I do think though that one should not overstate, one should not lie about the efficacy of those things or bullshit too much about how much those things can change in the short term. Because I do think it's really important to always be honest, 100% honest to the extent, because to some extent we don't know, things change, right? Sometimes decades happen in weeks. Sometimes shit just pops off and things change. May of 2020, Occupy Wall Street, these things really change. At least they change like the discussion, whatever that's worth. I don't know, maybe that's not worth it. But so one thing that the sort of the left, I think, can do and many have tried to do is basically want to create the infrastructure and the systems and the ideological scaffolding. So in the event there is some kind of change or some kind of paradigm change, there's tools in place. Because I do think that in the event of some kind of crisis, whether it be another recession or what have you, people are going to turn to some system. And the, what you don't want them to do is you don't want to turn to fascism, right? You don't want them to turn to right wing, quote unquote, right wing populism which is what happened to a great extent during the recession in 2008. You saw a turn to the AstroTurf Tea Party, and it wasn't really until two years later there was some kind of left-wing version of it with Occupy Wall Street. One of the main tasks now is to provide those systems, the ideological scaffolding, the political great framework. And a lot of people are, right? You, you have progressives, you have DSA, you have Working Families Party, you have people who are working to do those things. You have non-charity-based, more social justice-oriented political work. You have this, what we're seeing with the cop city protesters in Atlanta. There's, there is, there's all these people that are out there doing stuff, but weren't just cynical podcasters like myself. And so I, I think directing people towards those resources, telling people there's stuff you can do, it does give them a sense that there is things happening, right? Where that, that to the extent to which there is, you diagnose the problem as being quite bleak. Now I will say in the case of Texas, I actually don't know a ton about that. So I, even I would be curious to know what you think the best re- best places people can go, what the calls to action are that aren't just, frankly, dumping more money into another the democratic coffers, which I think is fine, but it can't be everything. I think it's like voting, right? It's useful, but it has to be one of 10 things. Otherwise, you're just a, you're just a lever puller. And there is no more passive form of democracy than pulling a lever. 
Yeah. Or like at least show up to, to do your vote at a minimum and then we'll go from there. Yeah. Otherwise you're just, you're just chum in a partisan machine versus like someone who's generally pressuring. For yeah. Yeah. A lot of our show has been trying to tap people on the shoulder and say, do you really know what they're doing at the Capitol and at your city council and the county commissioner's court? Because I think a lot of people don't recognize what's happening and that primaries are where you really need to be voting because that's where that extremism comes through and where you can vet candidates because too often, yeah, it comes down to R or D. And do you even know who this person is? Did you even know there was other options? You didn't? You should vote in your primary. Why would they? Yeah. Yeah. No, they're too busy freaking out about whatever, some minor welfare scheme that they've seen on the news. Yeah, there is a lot to freak out about. And we're trying to help people know like the real things that they need to be aware of and the ones that are distractions. To wrap up, we are going to ask you, how do we fix this? What are your solutions? You get a magic wand. Yeah. Under the Johnson yeah. <laughs> I would probably just commandeer the wealth for the rich. You can put them on a stipend of a hundred grand a year, let them live nicely, but no reason why people need that much money. And they certainly don't need that much money when they're wielding it to bad ends, as many of them do politically. There's just far too much power and wealth in the hands of far few too many people in that they're the biggest predictor of a degradation of social trust in a society is inequality. And the biggest predictor of criminality is a decrease in social trust. I think social trust and equity are actually incredibly important values, even if you don't necessarily support radical distribution, I think in and of themselves, they have a ton of tremendous benefit. Under the Johnson regime, that's what I would do. I would, if you're rich, I would take the vast majority. I'll leave you with something. You can keep your Tesla, whatever, but that would be my plan. Sorry. Oh, that's all right. Do you think most people see the wealth distribution for what it is, or do you think they have a warped sense of it and don't think it's as extreme as it really is? You can look at polling. You ask people what they think wealth distribution is, and it's like, they're not even close. They're not even remotely close. Because again, people don't even know what these terms mean. If you make a dollar every second, you become a millionaire in 11 days, and you become a billionaire in, holy shit, I gotta look it up. I totally forgot what it is. Sorry. Well, we'll keep talking while you look it up. But I think- You gotta edit this out so I don't look like an idiot. <laughs> yeah, okay. So I was close. I was close in my head. If you make a dollar every second, you become a millionaire in a little under 11 days. But you make a dollar every second, you become a billionaire in 31.7 years. We don't even know the difference between a millionaire and a billionaire. I remember when, Bert, when they tried to do gotcha on Bernie Sanders, but man, well, he's a millionaire. It's like $2 million from his book sales. It's not 1905. That doesn't really mean much. And obviously very comfortable. And that's certainly in the top, puts him in the top 3%. But like people don't even know what a billion dollars is because it's abstract. It's just completely abstract. Like in the case of someone like Jeff Bezos, if you made a dollar every second, that would put you at about 3,000 years versus... 11 days. And so even the terms we have, if every media was required to not use the logarithmic notation with money, if they actually had to type out sort of Roman numerals or whatever, we would have a sense of just how much wealth disparity there is. I don't think people quite internalize how much wealth it is. They also don't internalize how much power politically that gets you in this country and how things like super PACs have such a eroding effect on our democracy such that it is. Even trying to get people to understand that. I don't, how, where do you even begin? People try to create videos where they visualize it, but it's just not something people really comprehend because it's so abstract to them. And also the wealthy are very good at laundering their images. They're very good at public relations. And they can pay someone for that. Yeah. So as long as you have, if you do the J.D. Rockefeller where you ride around in your carriage and you throw silver dollars out the back, you're pretty much fine in this country. Because as long as you can just throw people shiny objects sometimes, do a charity ball, you, know, you work on your PR and you're fine. Yeah. To end on an on a uplifting note, what things make you hopeful for our future? The people that go wake up every day and they face impossible odds. It sounds cheesy, but the people who work in, who are out in the middle of 
rural Indiana, driving people to abortion clinics on the border in Illinois, the people who wake up every day and try to unionize their shitty job at Home Depot, the people that wake up every day and go to school as public school teachers and try to educate people while they're getting yelled at by right-wingers for being groomers or whatever, like the people who show up every day and do the unsexy, unglamorous, unheralded, unsung work to try to move people towards some vision of progress and justice, I suppose. That's really good. Are we going to do our attention mentions? Are we going to totally change gears? Yes. Let's do it. Yeah, to wrap it up, we'll do our attention mentions where we mention something that has our attention, be it a book or a show or a podcast. We have attention mention citations needed, just so you know, Adam. Perhaps you've had some listens from it. I'll start off. I am currently watching The 1619 Project, which is incredible. It's on Hulu. And they actually had an episode recently on capitalism. And it talks a lot about the things that came up in this episode, a lot about unionizing and how important that is to having a robust economy that is equitable, just about the history of slavery and how the way they would plantation owners would keep their logs and assign values to humans. It was it was a great episode. Very sad history, but we got to know what it is. Definitely recommend folks watch that. Good one. I have not built up the emotional fortitude yet to watch it, but I will definitely watch it one day. But I have to mentally and emotionally prepare. So then what are you watching, Nicole, or reading or listening to? I have my share of romance novels. And there is one that I've reread so many times. It's the most slow burning romance novel of all time. It's ridiculous. They're like friends for a really long time. Which, by the way, doesn't happen in real life. Usually those things are, sorry, every Hallmark movie I watch where they're like friends for 20 years and then like they get together at the last five minutes, I'm like, that would have happened in 1999. Yeah. No, it's, like that. Sorry. I don't know what it is I get from reading this one, but there's something I love about it. I don't what know what it? it is, actually. It has a great title. It is Ravishing the Heiress <laughs> by Sherry Thomas. It's a great title. And she's such a great writer that the title is really corny, but she's it's really good. Certainly gets why I'm going to remember that. I'm going to remember that 10 years from now. They're like, Ravishing the Heiress. Ravishing the Heiress. There was a whole series. <laughs> there was like Tempting the Bride and... And yeah, it's a whole thing. Oh, I don't really read romance novels. So maybe I'll check this one out. The one you return to. <laughs> okay, Adam, what about you? I just wrapped up reading. Ron Swafford wrote two biographies on Mozart and Beethoven, and I just read them both. I really, really, really enjoyed them. I actually don't know anything about music. He's a composer by trade. He's not, he's a, he does, he's also a historian and biographer. So he goes into the weeds about the music and the new creation of the music and the sort of things that were going on in their lives when they created their operas and their compositions. And I really enjoyed them. I was shocked how much I enjoyed them because I'm I'm a big fan of biography. I read a lot of biographies, which I suppose. But yeah, it's called uh, Mozart Reign of Love. I really liked it. His Beethoven one was good, but not quite as good because mostly because Beethoven is just a huge asshole. Although Mozart seems like a nice guy. Died at 35. He was a short king. Oh, dang, that's young. Back in the 1780s, though, man, that made, made him an old man. I think the average lifespan was like 40. So I think that was young. Yeah. That's crazy to think about. Like, I'd have three years left. <laughs> oh, I'd be dead. <laughs> No. Long dead. Uh, almost time. Oh, yeah, we'd all be too, like <laughs> one of us would be here. The rest of us would have died at like two. All right. Well, thank you for sharing all of your knowledge with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Of course. I'm big fans of the show. So if you want to hear more about some of the items that Adam touched on, check out Citations Needed and follow us on social media because we're going to continue this conversation about food insecurity leading up to our South by Southwest panel. So if you're in Austin for that, come see us March 13th. It's going to be great. 
We're going to talk about all these important things. And that's it for now. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, everybody, for joining me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, on Go Behind the Ballot. Hopefully, we've demystified some little portion of Texas politics, and we hope that you'll do more with us. Check out our website at www.gobehindtheballot.com, where you'll find links to all of our social media, and you will find our community. Let's join together and do more. We hope you'll let us know what is working and we hope you'll join us next week. Thanks everybody and have a good one.